Welcome to part two of this Rock Geeks podcast. Before you listen any further, and if you haven't already, we can highly recommend that you go back and listen to part one. Thanks very much. This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad will definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. So let's, uh, let's have a chin wag about the gear that Weezer were using on Pinkerton. Um, we'll start with Rivers Cuomo and his guitars. Um, much of this information comes via Weezerpedia um, and is written by uh, Weezer's fifth member and archivist, Carl uh, Koch. So the following two paragraphs are written by Carl Koch about Rivers Cuomo's guitars. Um, he says, The other new guitar, picked up by Rivers in the fall of '93. Uh, was a Gibson Les Paul Jr. inspired by the sound of Rick Okasek's 55 Gibson Les Paul Special Double Cutaway. At the time of purchase, we were assured that this guitar was a 1958 that had been unfortunately refinished, thus reducing its collectability but increasing its affordability. Somewhat suspicious was the lack of a serial number on the headstock, which had been sanded down in refinishing. However, the guitar had, and still has, a wonderful chunky sound, so that, combined with its unusual vintage affordability in the $800 range, I believe, led to its purchase. We learned much later that it's much more likely to be an early 70s issue, and that the neck, nice as it is, is likely from the 80s. Well, fortunately, the guitar has proven its metal numerous times, and is still in use today, 2001, with Brian. Um, Now... I don't doubt that Rivers Cuomo purchased a second-hand Gibson Les Paul guitar of some description um, that he went on to record Pinkerton with. But there's a couple of comments from Carl Cock here that are a bit problematic for me. Um, firstly, he refers to two different guitars. Um, the most significant difference between Les Paul Jr. and the Les Paul Special is the number of P90 pickups. The Les Paul Jr. has one P90 and the Les Paul Special has two P90s. Um, so which one of these uh, is the correct guitar? Um, well, there are a few photos of Rivers Cuomo from this time, um, circa 93-94, playing what looks like a Les Paul special in rehearsal and on stage, so I think we can discount the Les Paul Jr. Secondly, the line, we learned much later that it's much more likely to be an early 70s issue and that neck, nice as it is, is likely from the 80s, causes me to believe that the might be a touch of dramatic license going on uh, on the part of Carl Cock here. Um, it's unlikely that on a Gibson Les Paul that an entire neck would be replaced because unlike, say, Fender guitars that have bolt-on necks and can, that can be removed quite easily, um, Gibson necks are generally glued in place, which makes them very, very difficult to remove. And they're not, they're not through body, though, are they? It's like... No, no. They're, they're, they're glued on. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ever really... Unless, it had, unless there was something very unique and special about it. You just wouldn't do it, would you? No, because I think the, the, the costs in having a luthier do that are prohibitive. It, it costs more than the mm. guitar is worth to, to, to bother doing that. So what I think um, has probably happened with this guitar um, is that Gibsons are massively prone to broken headstocks because there's a weak spot where the neck meets uh, the angle of the headstock. And these kinds of breaks are incredibly common occurrences with Gibson guitars, so I think it's far more likely uh, that the guitar suffered a headstock break at some point that was either repaired or replaced, and this is what Carl Cock is referring to here. Have Gibson ever acknowledged that this is a design flaw? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's been around for so long. I know. And, well, they, they did, as we will get on to in a, in a moment, they did take steps to try and... The volute. Yes, thing. the volute. Uh, they, did, they did try to take steps in the, uh, I think, late 60s, early 70s uh, by adding a volute to the back of the neck, which we will get on to uh, uh, shortly. I just um, thought that it might be like, you know, we, Music Man basses, they're notoriously yeah. weak. 
the G string on them, the thinnest string is notoriously weak and it vanishes in the mix. Right. And if you ever mention it on their Music Man website, they delete the, uh, the forum <laughs> the, the forum comment. They just get rid of it. They've never really acknowledged it. Um, and people have complained and they're almost like, no, no, yeah. Yeah. no, doesn't. <laughs> but yeah. it does, I can assure you. <clears throat> well, maybe Gibson are like going, well, it's not our fault. You should be more careful with your... With your guitars. And they have, they have kind of fixed it now, though, but they didn't, you know, like in a new reissue, they fixed it. Yeah. But they didn't say, and we have improved blah, 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 because it would mean an acknowledgement of, you know, Ooh, a past fault, yeah. Pride, pride before a fall. I know. I don't know. Um, if, if this guitar that Carl Cock is referring to is a 70s reissue, then it's most likely um, to be a Gibson Les Paul 55 Special, uh, which was reissued by Gibson in 1973 and again in 76. Um, the main difference between these two reissues is that the 73 reissue featured a period correct wraparound bridge, uh, whereas from 1976 they featured a full tunematic bridge set. Um, the guitar that Cuomo had been pictured with um, had a wraparound bridge which would date it to somewhere between 1973 and 1975. So was this Gibson Les Paul 55 special guitar the only guitar that Cuomo used to record Pinkerton with? Um, in short, no it wasn't. Um, during the making of video, Weezer goes to Van Noy's Rivers can be seen, um, only from the back unfortunately, uh, playing a guitar that has a Gibson open book headstock. Um, which refers to the shape on the top of the headstock, which in profile looks like a book that has been left open on the table. Yeah, like a kind of old-fashioned drawing of what would be the top edge of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's playing a guitar that has a Gibson open book headstock, um, but also appears to have a volute shaped into the back of the neck. Um, now, a volute is uh, when the neck is sanded so that the wood is thickest at its weakest point, as we've uh, just mentioned, um, which on a Gibson guitar is the part of the neck just below the headstock. This gives the appearance of a curved protrusion running across the width of the neck, which is just there to strengthen mm. that section of wood. Um, and the reason that this is significant is that the Gibson Les Paul 55 Special did not feature a volute on the back of the neck. Um, and furthermore, on the same piece of footage, Rivers Cuomo can be spotted um, sporting a red guitar strap uh, on his guitar. Just after that shot, uh, the camera cuts to a Les Paul-style guitar propped against the wall with a red strap attached. And that guitar has binding on the body and neck with, and also has block inlays. Now, the Les Paul 55 Special and the original Les Paul Specials were intended as budget guitars uh, that didn't have all the decorative features of their more expensive counterparts, such as body binding and block inlays. Um, the Les Paul 55 Special did have neck binding, but it didn't have body binding and spotted dot inlays instead of block inlays. So these two uh, Les Paul style guitars that we're talking about are obviously very different um, very different models. So what variety uh, of Les Paul are we talking about in this piece of footage? Um, well, one clue is the volute. Another is the top hat style control knobs. And lastly, uh, a further clue uh, as to its identity is the tuning pegs, uh, which are definitely not the Clues and Deluxe tuning pegs that were found on the Les Paul 55 Special, and which appear to have Grover style casing with a Clues and Tulip style peg. Um, the guitar on the Weezer Ghost of Van Noy's video also appears to have a cherry sunburst style finish. So, with all that said, that particular finish, the style of tuning peg, the body and neck binding, the block inlays, the volute and the top hat control knobs can all be found on Gibson Les Paul standards or Gibson Les Paul deluxe models that were produced in the mid-70s. Um, I've also seen photos of Rivers Cuomo from this period playing a Les Paul Custom. Uh, but the customs had double binding, which the, the guitar seen on the Van Noy's video did not. However, the subtitle of one of the photos taken in May 96 by Spike Jones on Weezerpedia states that the guitar is being used to record Pinkerton. So to summarise, Rivers Cuomo possibly used a truckload of different guitars to record Pinkerton with, but we know for sure that he used the following guitars. Uh, a Gibson Les Paul 55 Special, possibly on all the sessions, but we've got no documentary evidence of that. Um, a Gibson Les Paul Standard or Deluxe, uh, which was definitely used on the January 96 Sound City sessions. Could have been used elsewhere, but we don't know. Um, and a Gibson Les Paul Custom, which was definitely on the May 96 Sound City sessions, because it was photographed with the guitar then. Um, but we don't know. He could have used it on other sessions as well, but we don't know that for sure.
I love a Gibson Les Paul custom. They are they are super nice, but notoriously heavy. Mm. So if, like me, your back isn't really uh, up to snuff, then um, they can cause a few mm. issues in that department. I'm not a fan of gold on guitars either. That's the one thing that puts me off some of the issues of them. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the thing with the custom also is it has an ebony fretboard, which is too hard. It's ha- too hard right. on the mm. fingers, okay. I find. Um, you know, rosewood and maple can be a bit more forgiving um, than, uh, than than ebony can. So, um, keyboards on this album are used quite sparsely, but actually form, you know... They're really key parts in some of the songs, aren't they, that they are actually used in. Yeah, and I think um, from a production point of view, it's one of the things that sort of sets this... Uh, sets Weezer apart, really, from other bands of the time, because I don't think that many other bands were using these sort of old analogue synths in, in the same kind of way. So, again, from uh, from Weezerpedia, um, in late 1994, Rivers purchased a vintage Electrocomp 101 monophonic synthesizer from a pawn shop in rural Connecticut. He paid a fraction of what these things are currently valued at by collectors. It saw use on several black hole demos and finally appeared on Pinkerton's Tide of Sex, Get You and the B-side, I Just Threw Out the Love of My Dreams. Um, He still has it today. So, um, from VintageSynth.com, a little bit of info about the Electrocomp 101. Um, The Electrocomp 101 was the successor to the rare Electrocomp 100 from Electronic Music Laboratories, a small synthesizer company based out of Connecticut in the USA. Like the ARP 2600, the 101 was a patchable, semi-modular synth with a pre-wired voice path that could be overridden via patching. But unlike the ARP, or Minimoog for that matter, the 101 had as many as four oscillators, two of which could go subsonic for use as LFOs. I have no idea what you're talking about at this point, so (laughs) can I just just bring that into the mix? (laughs) Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, this is, we're living up to our name here, this is geeky stuff. Yeah. Um, I know lots of people will, but I <laughs> my, I'm, I don't understand this. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the 101 had as many as four oscillators, two of which could go subsonic for use of, of, as LFOs, with multiple waveforms that you could sweep between using its rotary knobs. The 101 was also duophonic, so you could play up to two notes at once. Another major distinction was that unlike the Moog and ARP, who used transistors that would tend to drift out of tune under various operating temperatures, EML used op-amps, which proved to be far more stable and reliable. And it has, you know, it has um, features on it which I, I suspect were quite uh, advanced for the time. Uh, voltage-controlled 12 dB per octave multimode filters, um, with resonance and two envelope generators, ring slash amplitude modulator, noise and sample and hold. Whatever any of that means, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. Uh, in addition, uh, the 101 makes no distinction between control voltage and audio paths, allowing just about any source to be patched to any control or audio input in any order. The 101 could easily be closed, secured and carried inside its wooden casing. Um, I guess all that is to say that for its time it was uh, an incredibly versatile piece of kit. Right. That's what I'm taking away from that. I might not understand it, but I, I get that it was quite an advanced uh, forward thinking uh, synth for the time. So these, um, these synths are quite expensive now, uh, as uh, indicated uh, earlier on. Um, Go on, uh, how much? Well, at the time of recording our first run at this uh, episode, uh, there was one for sale at Rock and Roll Vintage in Chicago, um, and it was going for the princely sum of £4,435.66. Wow. Okay, so uh, moving on to acoustic guitars. We know that on the Blue Album, um, Weezer used a Gibson J45, which I believe was a 1974 model. And I've got, we've got no reason to believe that the acoustic used on Pinkerton was uh, a, a different guitar. I think once you've found an acoustic guitar that sounds great mic'd up in the studio... going to say, if it records well... Because <clears throat> not, not all acoustic guitars mm. do, um, but if you get that one that does sound particularly good, you tend to stick to it and, and use it again and again. Um, because, you know, as the wood 
matures. They they just sound better and better with mm. every year that passes. So um, the Gibson J45 was introduced in 1942, and it was called the J45 because it cost $45 brand new. Now, as we mentioned, uh, Como played this uh, 74 J45 on the Blue Album, and we don't know for sure that it was used on Pinkerton, but there is some footage on the Van Noys video uh, that shows Brian Bell playing a Gibson flat top acoustic that looks very similar to a Gibson J45. So I think we can safely assume that it was that um, that guitar that was that was used to record the acoustic parts. Um, moving on to amplifiers, this is uh, again uh, Carl Cock on Wikipedia. Um, Rivers' next new amplifier was inspired by their 1995 appearance on the David Letterman show, uh, which took place on uh, August the fourth which was about three weeks before they went into the studio to start recording uh, what would become Pinkerton. The JCM 900 SLX, uh, this is the amp that Rivers was using uh, on the Blue Album Tour and on the Dave Letterman show appearance. Um, It picked up a horrible sounding hum once it was set up, uh, probably due to to the electrical configuration of the building. Um, and it seemed hopeless as the song uh, that the band were performing was Say It Ain't So, uh, which has quiet parts. Um, in the corner was an unused, still in the box, 1992 Marshall 30th Anniversary 6100LM amp, um, which had apparently been shipped in by the Cranberries for their upcoming performance later in the week. Um, we borrowed the amp, brackets, sorry, Dolores, close brackets. Oh, bless Dolores. Bless Dolores, yeah, indeed. Um, and lo and behold, it sounded much better. So we immediately set out to get one, and it became River's main amp since then. River settled on the yellow sound, which is the centre of the three channels you can pick from. Red is ultra-metal and green is mellow. It would stand to reason, then, that um, in the studio, having discovered this uh, 30th anniversary Marshall amp, um, that uh, River's Cuomo would quickly purchase one and use it on Pinkerton. Mm. So, cabinets-wise, we know from Joe Barace's comments earlier um, that um, uh, the band were using angled 4x12 cabs um, in the studio. I'm, I don't know what they were loaded with. I couldn't find any information to say what speakers were in the cabs, but I would expect um, them to be loaded with Celestians of some description. Um that would be my guess. Um, Effects-wise, for Rivers Cuomo, um, around this time he was using uh, a, a, a Jim Dunlop Wawa and a Boss DS2 Turbo Distortion as a Oh, I love them pedals. Boost. Yeah? I do. They've got a very specific sound, don't they? Kurt Cobain pedal? Uh, no, no he, he, that was the DS1. All right. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Nothing for a DS either side. Nothing for a DS either <clears> side, yeah. So moving on to Brian Bell, guitars-wise, on the Weezer Ghost of Van Noy's video, Brian Bell can be seen playing his Gibson Melody Maker SG, uh, the same guitar that features uh, on the inlay sleeve of the Blue Album. Um, from Carl Cox Notes, um, Brian joined the band in the fall of 1993. At this point, he was playing a red 1963 Gibson SG Melody Maker. Anyway, Brian said it was a 63, while some folks insist it's a 66, but in any case, it has a very low four-digit serial number, possibly number 1030, so it was old. The headstock uh, was the early rectangular shape, which came before the more familiar curved style. Uh, The tremolo bar assembly was missing, but you'd never know it unless you knew it was supposed to be there. 
This guitar was all original except for the tuning pegs, which Brian had replaced with locking ones to help keep the thing in tune, which was an uphill battle. The pickups weren't the original ones, but what they were remains unknown at the time of writing. Hot rails have been suggested, uh, but perhaps they are recognisable from the picture below. Um, I've looked at that picture and I would concur that, uh, yes, it is indeed a hot rails pickup in there. Um, so according to the font of all verifiably accurate knowledge Wikipedia, in helping to uh, identify this guitar and the, the year that it was made, the body style um, of the melody maker um, wasn't originally a Gibson SG shape. Um, it was changed to the to the SG shape in 1966, and colloquially, uh, this is known as the SG Melody Maker. Surprise, surprise. It gained the SG's pointed horns, while a large white scratch plate and white pickup covers replaced the black um, of the previous uh, previous shape, which. The, the previous shape of Melody Maker, sometimes um, they can be seen as being sort of a Les Paul shape mm. and other times they're like a um, a double cutaway shape, which isn't quite a Les Paul, um, but sort of bears a, a, a vague resemblance to um, to that kind of shape. So based on, um, on what we've just said, I'm going to go ahead and say that this uh, SG Melody Maker of Brian Bell's is definitely not a 63 and was definitely made sometime after 1966. And I'm going to go so far as to say that I'm pretty sure it would be a 1967 model. Um, and the reason for this is that every Cardinal Red double pickup Gibson SG Melody Maker that I can find online um, is a 1967. Uh, but also in addition to that, Gibson had a tendency to reuse serial numbers. Um, and the serial numbers from 1963 were reused in... Can you guess which year? 67. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm on it now. Woo, 1967. Um, so, yeah, so we can, I think we can say, uh, based on that, that, um, that this uh, Gibson SG Melody Maker is a 1967 model. Um, unfortunately, there isn't a happy ending for Brian uh, where this guitar is concerned. Uh, Carl Cott goes on to say... Brian picked up a rare and unusual guitar, a solid aluminium necked Travis Bean later in 95, which I think he was using at the Irish Centre in Leeds when I think we he was, saw yeah. them yeah. Um, in June of 95. Uh, both the red SG and the Travis Bean were stolen right out of Brian's car, so Brian had to start his guitar quest over again. Probably in Leeds. It's not in a great area, that venue, is it? <laughs> So, again, uh, Carl Cox's notes raise a few questions for me at this point, and I'm beginning to suspect that he's not the most reliable of uh, chroniclers, um, because um, if the SG Melody Maker was stolen in late in 95, as he suggests, how can Brian Bell be playing it at Sound City Studios in 96? Because he is, he's, he's in photographs uh, using that guitar in May of 96. So yeah, so it's a good job Carl Cock hasn't documented anything of, uh, of serious uh, consequence. Mm. So amps-wise, um, Brian's first amp setup consisted of a Marshall 212 cabinet, a loud little thing that was perfect for the club touring that was to come. So I'm going to assume there was an amp on top of the 212 cabinet. Mm. Um, otherwise, um, it definitely wouldn't be a loud little <laughs> It wouldn't thing. have been perfect, would it? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Since Rivers had the Marshall SLX head now, Brian got the Mercer Engineering 60 Watt pictured inside the Blue Album for his amp. Uh, this worked out fine for the first several months of touring in 94. Sometime late in 94 or early 95, Brian upgraded. Um, now, this is just me being a bit nitpicky, um, but the Mets Boogie Mark 1 is a, is a fantastic amp. It really is. Um, and in the early 90s, before the boutique amp boom properly took off, it would have been a really difficult amp to upgrade from. Um, so let's let's hear what um, Carl Cock considers to be an amp upgrade in this regard. Okay. Um, he found yet another tall Marshall 4x12 of almost the same exact vintage and specifications as Rivers, and he picked up a vintage Marshall head, a Mark II Master model 100-watt lead dating from the late 70s. This head is still used frequently in recording, especially. Um, now, looking at the photos um, from the time, it would appear that this amp is a Marshall JMP 2203 Master Model Lead 100 Top. Um, 
which is a snappy name for an amp, isn't it? it? Is, yeah. Um, and also, in my humble opinion, this is one of the last truly great amps that Marshall ever made. And although it's great, I don't think it's any greater than the Boogie Mark One. So I would have to say uh, that this uh, move is, is a bit more of a sideways move than an upgrade. Do you think it's the aesthetic? Because as great as Mesa Boogie are, they don't have the same old school, you know, rock historical vibe as a as a Marshall, do they? Do you know yeah, what I mean? I do know what you mean, yeah. You know, you see that Marshall logo and it's synonymous with rock and roll and, mm. and, and, and historically, you know, um, is the, the original rock and roll amp. Um, so cabs, um, Brian Bell was most likely using Marshall 4x12 cabs. Uh, as uh, stated by Joe Barresi. Effects-wise, it's really hard to find any details on what effects, if any, Brian Bell was using on Pinkerton. Um, if I had to guess, I would say that he wasn't using any and he was just going straight into the amp because I can't find any footage mm. where any identifiable effects units are at the foot of Brian Bell's mic stand. Um, so let's move on to um, to bass guitars and Matt Sharp's gear. Now... He's most commonly associated around that time, but to be fair, you know, this is probably the last time when people saw him in concert, most people. It's, um, he's most commonly associated with that jazz bass that's got like a Telecaster-shaped headstock um, neck on it, um, like a parts caster type thing, a Franken bass, whatever people call them. So he put it together, I think. So it's got Schecter, which are not the most rock and roll thing uh, pickups in the world, are they? <laughs> or, or just they're, they're just not, are they? It's just, there's a bit of a... Well, they know. are called monster tone pickups. I know. So, I think it's you know. Just, yeah. They're, yeah. So they're trying. Yeah, it's uh, so Schecter monster tone pickups. Hardware is probably something quite high end, like Goto Hipshot, something like that. Um, and that's it, really. The, the tone knobs look a bit mismatched on it. Um, it's probably just one of those that he chucked together. You know, because he had the money to do it at the time. I think he used it on the Blue album as well, didn't he? So yeah, this I is think before so, the money yeah. started rolling in. So yeah. you put, you know, you use stuff that fulfills a function. And the, there is a, a little Carl Koch anecdote as to how this bass came about, I believe. Yeah, so it, Carl Koch has said that he then bought a new Jerry Jones hollow body longhorn bass. Which, by the way, I think are really ugly guitars. They're awful. I know people have got a thing for them and how they sound and what yeah. they, but. I think they're just. I feel like I've had most different ugly. types of bases, but I wouldn't go towards one of those. No. Um, and he must have found that it wasn't very good in live performances. Just by looking at it, you probably think, "Oh God, that's going to buzz. It's going to be. It's going to be back." It's and not. also onto a. You know, they do look quite fragile. They do they look really fragile. Relatively yeah. speaking. So what he did was he made a trade for a Warmoth neck. Now Warmoth sell. Um, they're licensed products, aren't they? It's like yeah. if you're a kit build, yeah. if you like, if you want to replace a neck on a. A telecaster or something you could go direct to fender or you could go to somewhere like warmoth or all parts and they do licensed approved replicas of fender necks and it looks like what he's got here they're not cheap though they're not like cheap and nasty no 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 they're actually really good quality aren't they so he's got a telecaster headstock shape on it which is quite distinctive isn't it yeah because it's not quite as large as what would be on a normal jazz bass um it says he traded it for yeah. A whole Explorer Hamer, or a Hamer Explorer, I'm thinking it is. Did he have a Hamer Explorer as well at I, some point, and he's traded it just for a Warmoth neck? Yes, yeah, that's the general gist I get. But they do do a Hamer Explorer base, which actually looks as hideous as you'd imagine. <laughs> it's like a, you know, like a Gibson Explorer, but a base version. Listen, it was the early 90s, man, you know... I mean, in the early 90s, all those Hamer guitars, Jackson, Charvel, they were all still around. They and, were, yeah. You know, the people were still using them. I know, but an Explorer bass. Anyway, so, um, yeah, the neck was grafted onto a vintage black Fender Jazz bass body that he got as a gift, and then he put in those Schecter pickups. So it's yeah. kind of, it's put together from a few different um, a few different things. Yeah. And, and, and the good thing about that process is... Um, if you mess it up, you're not messing up an, a guitar that you've spent tons and tons and tons of money on because, yeah. you know, if you mess up attaching the neck to the body and you do something a bit wrong, you're not kind of sabotaging a, a guitar that's yeah. cost into the thousands, are you? It's something that can be fixable. 
And in, in a lot of Maybe. ways, as a, in a lot of ways, as a musician, you're more invested in the instrument because it's tailored to your mm. very specific preferences uh, and requirements. Um, and you know, I think it sort of tells its own story that that's the base that he's been seen mm. with using in live performance ever since. I think he did use a Music Man Stingray live around that time as well, which would not have sounded great on Pinkerton <laughs> at all. It really wouldn't. So yeah. Amps, he's um, he's been seen around the time as like with using a Galleon Kruger. Yeah. And he himself has said the sound was like not very good, awful and embarrassing. They're good amps. Yeah. They're all right. So I don't really know what he means by that. Well, I, I think, um, I mean, when we, when we get to talking about the other amps that he's well known for using, um, the Galleon Kruger amps, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do, I think the transistor, hmm. um, not transistor. They're not the, very warm sounding. Yeah, the, the, the Galleon Kruger amps, I think they're solid state amps. Hmm. And I think getting them to drive into that warm hmm. sounding, sort of semi-overdriven sound would be quite I think it would be diff- You probably have to put a pedal in front of it or something yeah. like that. They're not, um, I don't think they're not, I've never had one, so I can't speak from experience, but they're very different beasts to the orange um, gear that is also being seen using as well. Right, so during his early days with Weezer, he used two different amplifiers. So the first was the Galleon Kruger, which he doesn't talk with very nice terms about, um, looking back. Um, this was used when he was in kind of more punky bands. Um, and then during the Pink- Pinkerton tour, and then during Rentals touring, he often paired that amp, though, with a Sovtech Big Muff fuzz pedal to add distortion. And that's probably the main source of the sound on the Pinkerton record. There's a picture of Matt Sharp at Sound City stood next to his orange bass amp and it's sat on top of a similar sized flight case and it's hard to see what's being housed in the flight case, but it's possible that could be the old Galleon Kruger. Yeah. Who knows? Um, the second amp was a 200 watt 1967 orange Matt amp. Is this Carl Cock again? Uh... Yeah, I think it is Carl yeah. Cock again, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the amp that Matt Sharp is seemingly pictured with throughout this time in the band is definitely not from 1967. It's because of the model of the amp. The OR200 didn't go into production until 1969. Um, yeah, so it's, to cut a long story short, he's probably using a late 60s, early 70s orange Matt amp OR200. And then over time, he's bought other, you know, versions of the same amp and replicas. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the 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 orange uh, OR two hundred is certainly the amp that I remember he was playing through when when we saw them at yeah. the Irish Centre, because um, I can remember thinking, why is he using a guitar amp? Yeah. Uh, on, on top of his uh, Ampeg eight twelve cab. So expensive are those orange amps to buy yeah. now. If you want to get, I, I don't know what the flagship one is now, but uh, it's yeah, it's ridiculously expensive. Effects, like we've already mentioned, that he uses this soft tech, that's largely because it's documented that he used it. It's difficult to find right. any actual footage of him using yeah. it, isn't it? More it fo- is. photographs. It's more by um, looking at forums and what other people have written about the, um, the recording process around that time and what he was using. Yeah. Um, it's definitely some kind of good fuzz pedal. Yeah. Um, but we've never really been able to verify it through finding um, a picture of it or something like that. I mean, I, I, I've had a, a Softec Big Muff, and I can only imagine that he would have, he must have used it on a really low gain setting because they, right. they, they, they are quite okay. um, high gain right. uh, pedals. Um, and I can imagine on a bass guitar would very easily descend into mushy... Madness. Madness. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I can imagine also that, you know, with the OI200, if you drive the input of that hard enough, then that's going to give you some... Uh, warmth and overdrive as well. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm, you know, it's probably that that we're hearing at the start of uh, Tide of Sex. Um, and there's various other points where the bass seems to kind of sh- shine through a little bit and you can hear it more. Um, and you can tell it's just a really distorted tone in a lot of different parts of the, of the yeah. album. There's a few bits where you can tell it's a bit cleaner. You know, they've cleaned it up a little bit, but for the most part, it is that overdriven tone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, shall we um, give a brief nod to the to the drummer? <laughs> yeah, go on then. Um, so, Patrick Wilson, again, quite difficult to find out much information about uh, the kit that Patrick Wilson was playing on the Pinkerton sessions. Again, we're relying on um, Carl Cox's uh, dubious ability to remember um, 
musical instrument based facts and figures. Um, not that we're all in it against him. No, no. You know, you know, it's just. But he does run Weezerpedia. I don't know that he runs it, right? But he's just been quoted on it a lot. Right. So Carl Cock via Weezerpedia. Um, in 1996, Pat got a new Ludwig kit directly from Ludwig. Uh, this was a full double bass drum set, a super classic in champagne sparkle finish uh, that he broke into a big and a small kit. The small kit stayed at home and is heard on the first Special Goodness Bunny cover album and later went away somewhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where it went, nobody knows. Um, the big kit was used on Pinkerton and was used for all touring in 96 and 97. This kit went away as well. Did it? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Maybe it followed the small kit to wherever, you know, the small kit went to Bognor Regis and then wrote a postcard saying, the weather's lovely, come and join me. And the big kit said, all right. I just think the wording's weird. This kit went away as well. Yeah. It's very odd. Not very like odd. it went into storage or, you know, he just used it at home. It's, oh, it's yeah. kind of a studio kit. It went away. It went away. Uh, anyway, um, on the Van Noys video, um, Wilson's big kit uh, is kick, snare, rack tom, floor tom, hats, two crash cymbals and a ride. Um, commenting on uh, a ProSound web forum in 2007, uh, Patrick Wilson posted the following about the recording of uh, Pinkerton. I remember using Ludwig Classic drums in all the standard sizes. Um, if you Google... If you're not a drummer and you Google standard drum sizes, it doesn't it don't get any clearer what standard <laughs> right. drum sizes are. I'm assuming he just means, you know, a couple of toms, floor tom, bass drum. Yeah, but also um, the, 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 the depth, depth and width of, of the drum itself. Like, I, 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 I think, I don't know if each, man, if each manufacturer has its own standards. Right, okay. Or if there's a universal drum standard that all manufacturers adhere to. But um, anyway, all these drums were in the standard sizes, according to Ludwig, and I've no idea what they are. Um, so, yeah. Um, I tuned the bottom heads a fifth higher than the top, which I think had an impact on the sound. I forget what room we had at Sound City, but it's the one that had uh, Arkanoid in the lounge. So I'm guessing it had like a, an old-style stand-up arcade machine. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what that is, yeah. Really, it's all the same BS. Gibsons and humbucking warm of strats and marshals. So we can see where Patrick Wilson stands on guitar. He's exactly the same as us, so it's not just us. <laughs> He's like, where are Gibson and yeah, Marshalls? Yeah. The feeling is mutual. He actually mentions pick, he mentions pickups here, though. Yeah. It's a Schecter pickups, which yeah. is quite... The bass, Specific. Yeah, the bass was Warmoth with Schecter pickups, played through orange and matam pants, cranked. I can't remember all the mics, but Joe Baresi had an NTIEQ3 post compression on some drums. It was mixed, I think, mostly by Jack Joseph Puig, but I wasn't there. I only went over to Ocean Way once and was astounded with all the equipment in his studios. I read that as, I can't remember all the mics, but Joe Baresi had an NTIEQ3 post compression on some drums. Yeah. Just like some drums. Not on some drums, but just yeah. some drums. Just some. Yeah. Yeah, so um, so there you have it. That's um, that's drums. Symbols-wise, uh, uh, yeah. again, Carl Cock. Um, by this point, his symbols were as follows. Let me guess. Zildjian. Yeah. Or paste, however you say it. Pasty. Pasty. Pasty, right. Pasty, pasty. Am I right? Uh, you are right, yeah. It's Zildjian. Um, it, actually, oddly, um, Carl Cock gets quite specific here. Um so by this point, the symbols were as follows. Zildjian 14-inch K hi-hats with a 22-inch dark K ride mm. and 16 and 18-inch custom A crashers. This kit is currently kept at Pat's home studio. So that's where it went oh, away to. Oh, that's where it went away. It went to Pat's the... home studio. Right. So there you go. That's that's uh, um, all the, the gear... Um, that we could uh, find information on that we were using it in the studio. Shall we just briefly talk about the actual album artwork? Yes, let's. Because I think it's a wonderful piece of artwork. 
It is. I, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm hearing strains of sarcasm. No, in, no, I do. In, I actually right, do. Okay. Sorry, yeah. that's just my natural voice sometimes. Yeah, yeah uh, no, I, I would agree with you. I think it's a, it's a, a great uh, album cover. It ties in with some of the uh, other references in the lyrics and some of the inspiration behind it. It does. It does. Um, should we, should we start with the liner notes? Um, because you know, it's not common for an album liner notes to have quite so much detail about the artwork. No. Um, but I think because in this particular case there are copyright issues, I think mm. they had to put this information in the liner notes um, just so that they didn't get sued. So the artwork to credited uh, like so. Cover art, Kambara Night Snow by Hiroshige, used by kind permission of the Whitworth Art Gallery. So it goes on to say... The University of Manchester, copyright 1996, the Whitworth Art Gallery, comma, the, the University of Manchester. So that's obviously just a legal requirement that, mm. they, that they, they put that in the, in the uh, liner notes. So the first question is, why was this piece of artwork chosen for the cover of Pinkerton? Um, and the simplest answer uh, to this question is because it was created by a Japanese artist, which fitted thematically with Rivers Cuomo's main source of inspiration for the album, uh, which was Giacomo Puccini's 1904 opera, Madame Butterfly. Um, the album title itself um, is named after one of the characters in Madame Butterfly, B.F. Pinkerton, whom Cuomo described as an asshole American sailor, similar to a touring rock star. The Japanese artist in question... Um, now, you, people in Japan, if you ever hear this, I apologise in advance for my butchering of your um, intricate uh, language, um, but I am more than likely going to butcher some of these pronunciations, so um, I do apologise. The Japanese artist in question is Utagawa Hiroshige, born Ando Tokutaru, and he lived some point between <coughs> 1797... <laughs> And the 12th of October, uh, 1858. Oh, um, that's a bit vague. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, records probably weren't kept uh, yeah. as keenly as I guess. they are I just like how you put, he lived some point yeah. between 1797 and the 12th of October. Yeah, well, he, you know, 1997, um, roughly. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, and he was a Japanese ukiyo-e artist. Ukiyo-e? I think that's how you say it, say it. Um, and considered to be the last great master of that tradition. So, Phil, tell me, what is ukiyo-e? Well, OK, so we'll, we'll go to the Whitworth Gallery website, um, who um, post a Whitworth Work of the Week, or used to do, right. um, on, on, their, uh, on their website, which um, showcases a uh, particular piece of art that's uh, on display in the gallery. So this uh, particular uh, blog post uh, begins with Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, so obviously uh, it was uh, posted at some point in probably December of whatever year it was. Given the day, this selection really had to have a festive feel. And so we have chosen this magical scene by Ando Hiroshige in as much as snow and the idea of a white Christmas is festive. Between 1600 and 1868, during a period known as Edo, which I think is how you pronounce that, also the former name of the city of Tokyo, a particular style of printmaking became fashionable in Japan. This style was called ukiyo-e, uh, which translates as pictures of the floating world. Though its meaning changed over time, ukiyo-e became synonymous with the portrayal of positivity and the pleasures of life. This kind of work evolved and changed alongside current culture, reflecting the fashions, interests and demands of the market, brackets for print, close brackets, at that time. Subsequently, though, this style of imagery was not regarded with the highest of artistic merit, mainly because it could be found illustrating everything from erotica to oh. popular novels. <laughs> <laughs> Yet Hiroshige's work would go on, along with other artists, to influence Western artists and painting styles, um, in particular Monet and French Impressionism. Van Gogh produced works which were created after compositions from this series by Hiroshige. So talking about the artwork that appears on the Pinkerton uh, album cover... Uh, Whitworth Work of the Week blog goes on to say, uh, Hiroshigo suggests the effects of freezing nighttime snow 
partly through the figures who stumble along, one with his umbrella half open against the falling flakes, and partly through the landscape, which is depicted in monochrome tones of grey and black. The print is distinguished by the technique of Fuki Bokashi, where the shading that occurs at the horizon line is created by graduated wiping of inked woodblock before printing. Many of these prints depict idyllic scenes, and this one, although probably rather unpleasantly called for the figures within it, is no exception. The thick blanket of snow and heavily coated rooftops make up a perfect winter scene. The whiteness of the snow yet to fall which hangs floating in the night sky is captured through a wonderful printmaking technique, with the darkest sky hugging the outline of the mountains, trees and silent homes punctuated by bright stars. The characters in the foreground trudge bent over to shelter somewhat from the falling flakes, moving gradually towards warmth and to the safe havens of their homes, something that we can all relate to during this family period. Strangely, this 19th century Japanese print is responsible for a gold disc, which was presented to the Whitworth. The American band Weezer used this print, with altered colours, as an artwork for their 1996 album Pinkerton, and the disc was last seen hanging on the wall of one of our officers. So now you know. Mm. So there you go. Um, I mean, I think of, of, of all the artworks that I think we're going to discuss in this series, I think, you know, that one is... is Possibly the most in depth that we're going to go into, yeah. Um, at any time, but um, it is a really interesting um, piece of piece of artwork. It's probably the most interesting one they've done because all the rest of them tend to be the four of them, don't they, on the cover? Yeah. Apart yeah. from the one with that bloke off Lost, yeah, Hurley, and that one with the dog jumping off something. Raditude, Raditude, yeah, or something which I don't think I've ever listened to. I think just I think the combination of it being called Raditude and the dog on the cover has really put me off. Yeah, yeah. Um, unlike this artwork, which I really do think draws you in and mm. captures your eye um, and does sort of make you, um, you know, it does make you, I think, want to to investigate and, and, and put it on if you if you're meeting it for the first time. Other interesting uh, points of note regarding the artwork for Pinkerton. Um, lyrics from Madame Butterfly are printed on the Pinkerton CD in their original Italian. Um, everywhere in the world, the roving Yankee takes his pleasure and his profit. Indifferent to all risks, he drops anchor at random, uh, is the uh, translation there. Behind the CD tray, also, I'm sure many people have noticed this or, or discovered this and I'm sure there are equally as many people going CD tray yeah um, um, behind the CD tray is a map of the title Isola sorry Isola della Farfalla e Penisole di Cane yeah which is uh, thank you for that which is Italian for Island of the Butterfly and Peninsula of the Dog on the map um, uh, a ship named USS Pinkerton uh, and it also has Michael and Carly Island, which is a reference to a B-side, I believe, from the, the Blue Album. They were the fan club members, found, sorry, the fan club founders. Yes. Who died in a car accident, was it? Tragically in a car accident, yes. Um, I believe the either on the way to or on the way back from uh, a Weezer show. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is um, very sad indeed. Um, and, and also behind the CD tray... Um, on this uh, on this map, um, you will find the names of some of Rivers Cuomo's influences, uh, which include Howard Stern, Ingve Malmsteen, Brian Wilson, Lou Barlow, Joe Matt, uh, Camille Paglia, and uh, Ace Frehley. Who's Joe Matt? I have no idea who Joe Matt is or Camille. Let's have a look for Joe Matt. Joe Matt is uh, an American cartoonist. Oh, there you go. And who's the other one? Camille... Paglia. Camille Pag... Camille Paglia uh, is an American feminist academic. How ironic. How ironic indeed. <laughs> Do you think he put that in there? He thought, I'm going to have to try and balance some of this out here. <laughs> very, very possibly, yeah. A wry nod towards uh, feminism there. Let's have a look at some of her quotes. So, Camilla Paglia quotes from brainyquote.com. 
A woman, sorry, a woman simply is a man must become. Men know they are sexual exiles. They wander the earth seeking... No, I've gone past him. <laughs> Actually, no, what does that quote say? I'm interested because that does sort of tie in almost. It sounds like a Manic Street Preacher's uh, album quote, doesn't it? Yeah. Men know they are sexual exiles. They wander the earth seeking satisfaction, craving and despising, never content. There is nothing in that anguished motion for women to envy. Do you know what? Mm. That, that does tie in quite does very much so, well with it? Rivers Cuomo's state of mind when writing this album, I would say. Also, one of her other ones is, if you live in rock and roll, as I do, you see the reality of sex, and of male lust, and women being aroused by male lust. It attracts women, it doesn't repel them. Wow, yeah. And then a, re- a weird one that says, there is no fem- female Mozart because there is no female Jack the Ripper. No idea what that means. You might be able to dissect that a bit more, be more of a lyrics man. Um, well, you know, maybe uh, maybe it refers to the more um, destructive tendencies of the male of the species. Very good. And, uh, you know, men are more self-interested and self-driven and selfish than women and um, therefore more likely to get themselves into... Uh, Positions of notoriety, shall we say. Mm. Either for the right or the wrong reasons. Very good. Yeah, there's lots of, on brainyquotes.com, there's lots of Camille Paglia quotes. I quite like them, actually. Yeah. They're good. That's interesting, that. Nice to have discovered that right at the uh, right at the last. You have to accept that. In the, sorry. Cool, carry last, on. last one. You have to accept the fact that the part of the sizzle of sex... Sorry, I've said that word too many times today. Comes from the danger of sex. You can be overpowered. I haven't heard you say sizzle once. No. Can we just say before um, we wrap this one up? Yeah. The public perception of Pinkerton has changed vastly over time, hasn't it? Um, I think so, yes. It's I gone in waves so. over time, I think. Yeah. Even yeah. amongst, um, you know, the brain of Rivers Cuomo, I think it's... It's changed in its perception over time, hasn't it, from people? Yeah, I think um, I, th- I think initially Rivers Cuomo was um, appalled and repulsed by Pinkerton in the af- immediate aftermath mm. and the response to it. I think he said it's like getting really getting really drunk at a party, spilling your guts out to people, and then waking up in the morning being like, "Oh my God, what did I say?" Yeah, yeah, but that but that's that's the nature of creativity, though. You know, so. if you if you create something and put it out in the world for others to judge, then you're making yourself very vulnerable. Mm. Um, and I think you kind of um, it depends on how vulnerable you want to be. And I think what he's saying there is that maybe he overshared. Yeah, just slightly. I think so. There were some of those lyrics that we were reading out earlier on when I thought, did this need to go in song lyrics? So maybe he has overshared yeah. a little bit. But at the time it came out, it was slated, like absolutely slated. I think um, everybody hated it. The critics, the majority of our fans, most of my friends and family, <laughs> and the other band members, everyone thought it was an embarrassment, one of the worst albums of all time. Cuomo told Entertainment Weekly of Pinkerton in 2001. That doesn't leave much wriggle room for people to like no. it, does it? It doesn't, it doesn't. And and it goes to show that critics, whether paid critics or unpaid critics, aren't always right. Yeah. Um, you know. At the time, a Rolling Stone critics poll, no, no, so a Rolling Stone's critics poll would later infamous, infamously name Pinkerton the second worst album of the year. I think they got a bit of a bad... Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think people are unnecessarily horrible. I, I think I think the thing with Pinkerton is that when you looked at what else was going on at that time musically, mm. grunge was on its way out in America. in In the UK, Britpop was at its peak. Yeah, um, and but also in America, I, I think hip hop was becoming the the dominant force in in music at that point, you know, with um, uh, Tupac and, you know, and and the rest of those artists who who just, in the 90s, you know, became absolutely huge. Um, So, you know, when you think about Pinkerton coming out in in that musical landscape, there's going to be a certain amount of indifference to, to the work, even... 
Spe- well, specifically because it wasn't a rerun of the Blue Album. Mm, I think people who had heard of Weezer thought they were a bit of a not a novelty band, but that but Buddy Holly is veering towards being a bit of a. The video didn't yeah. help, did it? No. So people were either going to want more of that, like you're saying, you know, if you're going to veer away too far away from the Blue Album to do something which is so far away from it, people aren't really going to be that interested. That said, it spawned a lot of, um, you know, bands like Jimmy Eat World, the emo um, type bands, although I hate that word, emo, but it's quoted so many times, isn't it, by bands yeah. and I was being hugely influential. Yeah, you wouldn't have Dashboard Confessional if Pinkerton yeah. hadn't have come out. Um, you know, and 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 I think that um, I think that like most albums that are underappreciated at the time, like most sleeper albums, um, eventually, even the 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 people who wrote it, even you know Rivers Cuomo now has had a bit of a change of heart about it. I think they've towed it, haven't they, from beginning to end? Yeah, they've done one of those style tours. Yeah, because I I think that you know. If enough people come up to you and say Pinkerton was just a massive album for me mm. and I think it's a work of genius, you've got to start taking note, haven't you? You know, and, and that is essentially what happened. I think over the years, you know, younger, uh, uh, you know, the next generation of, of rock music fans has come along and picked it up and, and out of the context of the mid-90s mm. have really connected with it. And I think... For good reason, you know. Um, you put a definite end to the band for a while, though, didn't it, when it came out? Imagine yeah. touring an album that you know there's been absolutely slated. Yeah. It must have a weird psychological effect on you, you're going out and trying to be enthusiastic about this bunch of songs, which you're a bit like, well, I'm not so sure myself about these anymore. Everybody, people are not really into it as much. And you feel like people are waiting for your older songs, even though you're only two two albums into a career. Yeah, I think I think it depends on how um, tough skinned you are. Um, he doesn't strike me as a, a tough skinned kind of person, though. No, he is he's quite a sensitive time, soul. Yeah. Isn't he? He's quite a sensitive soul. Hilarious in interviews at that time, though. Oh, some of those <laughs> interviews that he did on telly where he's almost comatose, he's catatonic, just staring into space. Uh, yeah, but but in fairness to him. Some of the questions that are being put to him are absolutely ridiculous, you know. um, Imagine that every gig or every, you know, like every new town you get into or every new sort of area where there's there's more radio stations, more magazines that are in circulation in that particular area and the same questions all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised he was as he was. Yeah, I, I think I think you know some artists would be able to tour an album that's not selling well, put on an amazing show and drive sales. But I don't think Rivers Cuomo is that person. is is not that frontman that engages with the audience. When when we saw them, Matt Sharp was the guy that was doing mm. the job of the frontman. He was. He's always. Whenever you look at any footage of around that time. He's the one who's like a bit more of a focal point, isn't it? Almost like you look at him and think, are you trying to make up for the fact that he's not moving? Because some yeah. of his moves are a bit kind of, you know, like over the top, aren't they? Even for, you know, yeah. even for a live show. Um, but yeah, he left, you know, was it just maybe a year or so after the album came out? Yeah. And I think there was a bit of acrimony, acrimony wasn't there, between them all for a bit. I think they've... They've kind of patched it up a bit, haven't they, in more recent times and done a couple of acoustic performances together. Yeah, I think I think there has been a court case in between, hasn't there? Yeah. Um, I think uh, Matt Sharp um, had some claim to writing credits that he didn't get right. at the time. Um, and, you know, I can imagine that in the studio um, there were arrangements hashed out between them, mm-hmm. production values. You know, we talked earlier about the use of... of uh, Since... Talked earlier about mm. the use of synthesizers, so there would have been some debate over, you know, the production and the arrangements and potentially the writing of the songs. Although, I think it would be quite hard to um, claim that Rivers Cuomo didn't write every song on this album because it's such a singular voice all mm. the way through. Yeah, that's true. You know, so there we have it. There we have it. Pinkerton, a work of absolute genius, if flawed genius, but flawed genius is more interesting than perfect genius. Beautiful. I can't top that, Phil. 
Thanks. Bye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Just a couple of blokes Pouring all the liner notes We're the Rock Geeks Yeah, we're the Rock Geeks Who played on that? Who played on the other? Who did the album for the album cover? We're the Rock Geeks Yeah, we're the Rock Geeks Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us. 